Colossians 3, verses 11, and we'll read all the way to verse 17. And we're only going to preach to verse 14 today, but we'll, we'll pick up the second part of that next week. Stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. I told you all to sit down, didn't I? Stand up. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, we come before you this morning distracted. I know I am this morning. We're mixed up in many ways. Some of us come with weeks that were difficult. Some of us come with nights that were difficult. But you've brought us in to hear from your word. And we know that we're only changed by your word. And we seek you in your word this morning. So by your spirit, would you speak through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And I see now that I forgot to read verse 11. I told you I'm distracted this morning. We'll get to that when we get to the sermon. Well, one, one of the difficulties that, that I've found, and I know just from talking to you, is that when we break up a book like this into little passages, little chunks, we can easily forget the entire context of what we're reading. Remember, this letter, Colossians, the book we've been studying for several weeks now, it's meant to be read in one sitting Two guys named Tychicus and Onesimus brought this letter that we're reading from Paul who was in prison to this little church in Colossae. And the intent was that on that Sunday, probably in the evening, one of those two guys or or one of the elders in the church would have read this letter in its entirety to the church all at once. And that was their sermon. And with that in mind, it's important, the reason I tell you that is because I want you to, as we are studying this book together, I want you to read through this entire letter on your own at home. It's the only way for you to kind of get a picture of what's taking place in this letter. That was its intent. The only way for you to benefit from what we're doing here on Sunday morning is for you to be reading this text on your own. And as you read, ask questions of the text. What did Paul mean by that? Why did Paul say this and not this when I expected him to say something else entirely? How does this apply to my life? Come into Sunday morning with those questions and come in prepared to submit to Christ through his word. It is my aim as your pastor that, that we all, 
together as a church be transformed, that we be changed by the word of God. The, the Holy Spirit working through his word, that's what renews our minds. That's who renews our minds. So when I approach the scripture during the week, I do that anticipating, trusting that I'm going to be changed by it. I do that anticipating that, that I will be changed by it and that you will be changed by it because I believe deep down in my heart that God's, power, God's word has the power to change our hearts. So my expectation is this. When you come here Sunday morning, you come prepared to receive God's word. You've read the text. Your phones are off unless that's your text. You're well read, you're well rested, you're alert, you're ready to actively listen, and here's my promise to you. I promise you that I will come prepared to deliver God's word to you, for you, all right? Well, as we've studied together in Colossians, and especially if you've taken the time to read this letter on your own, you've probably noticed something. Remember, we're talking about the context here. You've probably noticed that Paul began this book with these, these big truths about what has already happened for the Colossians. And then he moved on to essentially say this, Colossians, do not ever forget what Christ has already done for you. Do not ever forget who you are in Christ. And he, and he did that to set up where we've been going the last couple of weeks. Because of who the Colossians are in Christ, Paul wants them to see that they should expect that their lives will begin to change. And that's true for us, church. Because of who we are in Christ, because of these glorious truths that Paul has shown us in Scripture from the Holy Spirit, we should expect that being brought into Christ, that our lives would look differently that they would look different than they would without Christ. Last week we saw that for those of us who were brought into Christ, our spiritual reality is that we died. We, we died and we've been raised up into Christ and our new life is now hidden in Christ. And Paul taught us last week that because that's true, we're to put to death the remnants of the old life, the, the vestiges of our old self. Well, that brings us to verse 11, the beginning, the true beginning of this week's text. This is a, a transition verse. Paul's moving us away from how we thought of ourselves individually, as, individual, as individuals, how we, we constantly fought to defend ourselves in terms of our earthly status and he's moving us toward how we're now to think of ourselves. So look at verse 11 with me. I told you we'd read it. Verse 11, here, and by here Paul means in the new self, in Christ, in the body of Christ, that's us, the church. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. 
When we lived our old lives, when we were in our old lives, we, we found our identity in these old worldly divisions. We compared ourselves to others. Oh, you're Greek. Oh, I don't eat with you. I'm Jewish. I, I come from a people more acceptable to God. Oh, you're barbarian. Oh, you haven't been educated in the, in the Greek philosophical system, have you? You must be of lower intelligence than me. I can't be seen with you. Oh, you're Scythian. Your ancestors are drunken rioters that, that rape and pillage and burn down whole cities. You're dangerous. I can't trust you. Oh, you're a slave. You're beneath me. You don't belong here with me. Oh, you're a free man. You'll never understand what my life is like as a slave. We have nothing in common. We, we do these things naturally. And it's not just a new thing. The Colossians were doing this. Humans, by our very nature, are tribal, aren't we? Read Genesis. Look at Genesis. Even though it's the story of God's interaction with his chosen people, you see the origins of hundreds of tribes and people groups in that, in that book. Paul recognizes then that, that we as Christians, even being born again, born again into an entirely new tribe, we're going to tend to segregate ourselves apart from one another according to the old worldly, the earthly divisions. And so Paul wants us to see that in in the body of Christ, in the church, whoever you were, according to the world's eyes, according to those old divisions, whoever you were is of no consequence anymore. There are not Americans or Mexicans or Syrians or Iraqis or Israelis in Christ. It's just Christ. There aren't young people or old people in Christ. It's just Christ. There aren't rich people and poor people, smarter people or not so smart people. It's just Christ. Christ is all and in all in the body of Christ. See, Christ alone is the new reality, the new identity for all of us who have been born again into him. And that's not just to be a spiritual reality. It's supposed to be evident. It should be visible to the watching world. When the world sees the church, the body of Christ, they should be so compelled by our unity that all they see is Christ. Christ is our identity. This was Jesus' prayer for us. Did you know that? Look, look back in John 17. So if you still have your Bibles open in Colossians, flip back to John chapter 17. The beginning of this series in Colossians, um, I reminded you, challenged you rather, that to read John 15 through 17 because you see so many parallels to from what Jesus was projecting on the church before his death to what we see fulfilled here in Colossians. And we see this again in John 17. In John 17, 20, 
Jesus is praying this final prayer to the Father. He's interceding for his disciples that he's leaving behind before he is arrested. And then in the middle of his prayer, he says this. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. So it's not just the disciples that he's praying for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the disciples' word. You know who that is? That's us. That's us, Del Cero. You and me and every other Christian living today, every other church that exists today, we're the people who have the faith in Christ and in his work because of the testimony of the disciples. So Jesus was praying for us. Then he says this in verse 21. This is his prayer for us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them. That they may become perfectly one. And he says it again, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Are you seeing what I'm seeing here? The unity that those who have been brought into Christ are to have is to be so striking, so unnatural, so noticeable to the world that on this testimony alone, the world would believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Think about that. A lot of times we think that it is to be things like healings or these supernatural events that point to the truth of the gospel. We get excited when a celebrity says that they're a Christian because we think, oh, then we'll have some credibility. But what does Jesus say will point to the truth of the gospel to a watching world? It's not healings. It's not Oscar acceptance speeches. It's not football players pointing to the sky after a touchdown. Jesus, the Son of God, says it is our unity that will point to the truth of who he is. So he's praying his last and longest prayer to his Father, and he's pleading with him that all of us would be unified so that the, when the world sees us, they only see Christ. According to Jesus Christ himself, our unity, our representation of Jesus Christ in all that we do is to be the greatest witness to the watching world. And we wonder why the world isn't captivated by our message. Why should they listen to us? Think about the landscape of the American church. We've got black churches. We've got white churches. We've got Hispanic churches and Asian churches. We have churches that are just for college students. We have churches that are just for millennials. Churches just for boomers. Churches just for the greatest generation. We have rich churches. We have poor churches, churches for people who like organ music, 
We have churches for people who like pop music. We have churches for people who watch Fox News and churches for people who watch MSNBC. We, we've taken biblical Christianity, the Christianity that, that, that Christ is calling us to, and we've flipped it upside down. And we've said, my comfort, my country, my flag, my people, my family first. And my identity in Christ, if it is anywhere, it's way down there at the end. And many of us, we look at our own churches. We look at our church. And, and we see what we're supposed to look like. What Christ is calling us to look like. And we say, we admit, that's not us. We don't have that unity in our diversity. We don't even have diversity. We know that we've surrounded ourselves with people that, that are just like us and we're comfortable that way. And some of us, in sin, refusing to put off the old self, we want to keep it that way. Other, others of us who are being led by the Spirit will say, God, we want the world to see Christ in us. Show us how. And you know what? If we're willing to let God's word be our guide, God will show us how to have that Christian unity. Look at verses 12 through 14. This is what this passage is all about. Verse 12. Paul says, put on then, you want that unity, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Del Cero, in order to be a unified body, in order to be unified in one body, we've got to put on Christ. Remember, we're already unified with Christ. We've been brought into union with Christ. That's the foundation for this letter. That's why I've been building over and over again, week after week, into that foundation. So that when we get here, we would see that our union is with Christ. That's who we are. So all of us have already been spiritually unified because we are spiritually one together in Christ. But in order for the spiritual reality to become a physical reality, to become physically visible, we simply need to put on Christ. We have to look individually more like Christ or to put on the clothing, the characteristics of Christ our Savior. When Paul says put on, he's saying literally it's like an outfit. It's like a, a new garment, an outer garment. We have to clothe ourselves in Christ. And all of us, when we are clothed that way, we're wearing the same uniform. We appear to the world as a unified body. Because if we're not taking off who we were, and putting on who Christ is, then what happens? 
well, well, what we represent to the watching world isn't Christ because we're still in our old garments. What we represent then is just our old selves. And that's of no witness. That's of no testimony to the gospel of Christ. So we must put off who we were and put on Christ. Now before we get into these characteristics of what that means, what that looks like, notice in verse 12 how Paul addresses those who are to put on Christ. He says, we're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's a reminder that who we are to put on begins with who we already are. No one could put on Christ's virtues if they haven't already been transformed in some way to live those out. These virtues are totally, completely antithetical to who we were, our old earthly selves, our old selves. We cannot muster up these these virtues on our own. See, these characteristics are entirely of Christ, so they must come from him. We are powerless, powerless to live out Christ-likeness without Christ. And on our own, Christian, we have no claim to Christ, the chosen one of God, the, the perfectly holy and beloved son of God. We don't deserve Jesus. We haven't earned him. And so we can't put him on. We can't clothe ourselves in his righteousness if we, by the grace of God, have not first, by God, been brought into him. That's why the beginning of verse 12 is so absolutely foundational to this teaching. It's crucial. Paul begins this this exhortation of who we are to put on by grounding us in God's redeeming work. Christian, never attempt to do anything in Christ without knowing how you came to be in Christ to begin with. God shows you by grace, not by anything you ever did or ever will do. You've been chosen by him. You've been declared holy and righteous by God in Jesus Christ. Why did God do that for us? Why did he do that for you? I know my heart. I know how selfish I am. I know how prideful I am. I know the thoughts that race through my mind that I would be absolutely ashamed if anybody found out. Why in the world, why in all creation would anyone give up his own son to die a bloody humiliating death so that his enemies, people like me, could be reconciled to him. What does he tell us? Love. He calls us his beloved. It's because because God loves you that he has given you his son and brought you in. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. It is because God loves you that he has given you Jesus Christ. And it's because God loves you that he has shown mercy on you and kept you alive until today so that you could hear the good news about Jesus Christ, 
so that you could receive Christ and by the power of God be brought into Christ. That's his mercy. That's his love toward you, whoever you are. It's because of his love for you that he's calling to you right now, come out of the world. Come into Jesus Christ. Receive the mercy I'm showing you in my son. Give up your hell-bound desire to live for yourself. Die to yourself instead. And receive Christ and live for him. That's his call on you. And he's calling you because he loves you. If you're already a Christian, if you've already been brought into Christ, you know what's true for you? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. It's because of God's love. God's love for us is the reason that we've been given new life and Christ's And God's love for us is the reason that that we can even respond to him with thankfulness and obedience. We can't put on Christ unless we know that the only reason we have Christ is because of the love of God. And we can't put on Christ if we don't know deep down in our hearts that it is only by the power of the Spirit working in us that we can ever be changed. With that foundation, now we can look at these virtues. Look again at verse 12. You're asking, how is any of this possible? How do we put on compassionate hearts that we see there? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. How do we do that? We put on compassionate hearts because Christ first showed compassion to us. He had mercy on us in our hopelessness. When we deserved nothing but the judgment of God, Jesus Christ had compassion on us and he saved us. So we put on Christ to have his heart. We put on kindness as well. We put on kindness because we know that when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us. We put on Christ to receive his kindness. We put on humility and meekness because we know, Philippians 2.6, though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We put on Christ to display that humility and that meekness. Put on patience because we know our Savior is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 teaches us this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We must put on Christ then to have that patience 
with others. As we have been brought into Christ, trusting in what's been made available to us in Christ, we are to put on Christ, to, to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. Keep going, look at verse 13. It's not just his character, but it's his, his actions. See, we bear with one another in Christ, as Paul says in verse 13, because God has forgiven us all of our trespasses in Christ and made us alive together with him. We bear with one another in Christ because we know that Christ was infinitely bearing with us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins. We're called to bear with others. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We put on Christ to become like that. A bearing people. An ever bearing people. Bearing with one another. We forgive one another in Christ. Because God has forgiven all of our trespasses in Christ. And made us alive together with him. As we've been forgiven, so we also must forgive. Do you see that in the text? Highlight it. Underline it. As we've been forgiven, so we also must forgive. I want to pause here for a moment. Just kind of take a stop in the argument that, that, that Paul's presenting. Because if you see there, this is the only command that comes with a must. You see that the must there? All of these put-ons, all the things we're to put on, they're, they're all commanded, but this one is especially commanded, if I can say that. We must forgive. Forgiveness is the, the essence of the love of Christ. His entire life mission, all of what Christ came to do was to come and die so that we might be forgiven. That was his mission. Because it's through our being forgiven that we are brought into fellowship with God. That we are reconciled to God. If Christ is going to be about reconciling all things to himself, church, a whole lot of forgiveness has got to happen, doesn't it? And so Paul says, that as the Lord has forgiven us, we have got to forgive. We must forgive. Let me give you a definition of forgiveness. Because that's one of those things that we talk about. It's like a Christian word. But what does that even mean? Here's my definition for you. To forgive means that you release the right to punish someone else for their offense. You release the right to punish someone else for their offense. Forgiveness is recognizing I have the right to inflict my justice on you, but instead I forgive you. I release that right. How do we do this? How, how can anybody do this? Because we are born with this sense of justice, aren't we? We know right and wrong. We know that when we are offended, we feel, even if we don't believe that there is any universal morality we feel when we are wronged. 
So how, how do we as Christians, who know there's a universal morality, how do we forgive when we know we're wronged? Well, we can do it because we are in Christ. Being in Christ means that you trust the power of Christ's work to such an extent that it's not just your sin that is covered by his work, but it is the sins of those who have hurt you. We're empowered to forgive because we trust in the power of the cross. Does that make sense? I want this to be clear. See, in in forgiveness, we are, as Christians, by the power of the Spirit working in us, we're becoming a, a conduit of the grace of God. We're feeling that universal need for justice, but we're giving up the right to pursue it. We're giving up the right to pursue our own justice because we know that it has already been satisfied in Christ's death. And so we forgive. We pass along Christ's forgiveness to those who have wronged even us. When we don't forgive, here's what we're doing. This is the other side of that coin. When we don't forgive, we're shrinking the cross of Christ. We're saying to the person who has wronged us, Jesus' work was enough to cover me, but it's not enough to cover you. And so I hold on to the wrath that I have towards you. It's saying your sin is too great. The cross is not big enough to cover it. Your sin is too costly. So something else, something greater than the cross of Jesus Christ must be accomplished to cover your sin. Something else must be done in order for this forgiveness to take place. Think about that. Think about what you're communicating when you hold a grudge. Is there, church, is there someone that you absolutely refuse to forgive? Many of you I know are are divorced. They've been deeply, deeply hurt by your former spouses. Some of you have been physically or sexually abused by someone else. Someone who you were supposed to be able to trust. Many of you have been hurt by parents in ways that you feel like you could never, ever reconcile. I can't can't pretend to know the scars that each one of you carry. The scars that, that you carry because of the sin of someone else. And I'm not saying that you ever have to trust those people again. And I'm also not saying that forgiving someone, their hurt of you will make all of your pain go away. Because it will not. But listen, do you realize that your desire to punish the people who have sinned against you is a statement to them that the blood of Jesus is not enough to cover their sin? As the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. I know this is costly. I'm not saying, oh, this is easy. I'm not at all saying that. But grace isn't cheap. It never was cheap. It's costly. When we give up the right to punish someone for their sin against us, we have to absorb within ourselves the pain that they've caused us. And we're taking all of that hurt on us at one time. All of that shame. But you know what, Christian? All of what we've been talking about, all of this putting on Christ, clothing ourselves in Christ, isn't Christ the one who did that for us? Isn't Christ the one who took on all of our hurt, all of our shame, all of our grief, all of our sin, all of our condemnation, and isn't he the one that absorbed within himself all of that for everyone who would trust in him him all at once? When Jesus died on the cross, and when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't because the nails in his hands hurt worse than the nails that were in the hands of the Christ's greatest pain was in absorbing within himself the wrath of God that all of us deserved so that we could be forgiven. So Christian, if we're called to put on Christ, then we're called to carry our own cross. And in doing that, we are empowered by his grace to forgive. We do that by putting on Christ. And we can do that because our motivation to forgive is going to be the same as his. Keep going in your text. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Remember the goal of all of these put-ons, all of these put-on-Christ, all of the, the characters of Christ that we're to put on. The goal of this, if you haven't forgotten, is Christian unity. Because in Christian unity... Christ is most fully on display. The goal is that our churches would be so gracefully unified that the world would see us and see Christ in all and all. The goal is that God would be glorified and that the world would see that the gospel is true because something supernatural is happening. Sinful human beings who have no business being in the same room together have been miraculously made new and brought into Christ together. And they're in harmony with one another now. When Jews and Greeks are brought into the same body of Christ together in Colossae, that was supposed to be a witness to everyone. And the only way they can do that is through love. 
How, how do Greeks and Jews and barbarians and Scythians and Americans and Mexicans and blacks and whites and rich and poor worship in oneness together? Representing Christ and not themselves. How do they do that? Well, we obey Christ's one command. He didn't command and ask much of us. His burden is light. So we obey his command that we love one another as he loved us. Love one another as he loved us. That we would be willing, because this is how he describes love, we'd be willing to lay down our rights to defend ourselves, our right to live for ourselves, so that instead we could, in Christ, love our brothers and sisters. That's our call. It's what love is. We love one another enough to say this, my identity isn't found in my blood family. It's not found in the family I was born in. My identity isn't found in some man-made geographical boundaries that, that I just happened to be born into. My identity is in Christ, whom I was reborn into. And we recognize that others who are in Christ with us, their primary identity is also in that new birth, in that new passport carry, not their old birth. And so we love them like the brothers and sisters they are with us in Christ. And we do this, as Paul calls upon us, above all else. Because if we are willing to do that, if we are able to put on love for one another, then all of these other Christ-like characteristics, they all just fall into place. If our motivation is love, then compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, all of those things just follow suit. If we're motivated by love, then bearing with one another, even really difficult people, becomes easier. If we're motivated by love, then forgiving one another, even of the greatest offenses, the most severe offenses, by love, that becomes easier. Love is what binds us together. It's what knits us together into one organism. It's what unites us. Look back at chapter 2 for a moment. Real quick. It's just a page before. In Colossians 2.1, if you remember, Paul is explaining what his ministry is to all the churches. And he's especially talking about the Colossian church and the Laodicean church just down the highway from them. And he says to them, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Remember, Paul's in prison, okay? He's in prison. He's there struggling for his people, through, for, for Christ's people through his prayers. And he's writing to them. And he's feeling pressed and burdened and feeling weighed down by his desires for them. And what does he say all that struggle and pain that he's feeling is for? Look at verse 2. His struggle is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. All of that begins with the unity we have in Christ, being knit together in love. 
or bound together by love, as he puts it here in chapter 3. When that happens, something happens in the church. The church begins to, to more and more reflect the nature and character of Jesus Christ. And that brings each one of us towards full assurance, blessed assurance. We get that from our love for one another. How does that work? Because when we love one another in Christ, and I mean a gospel love, when our love is motivated by Christ's love for us, when we love one another like that, we assure one another of the work of Christ over and over again. We're speaking gospel truth into one another's lives because we love one another. We remind one another of Christ's work for us. We encourage one another in Christ. We manifest Christ to one another. Del Cerro, the church isn't just a collection of people who say they're Christians and have some Christian-y stuff in common with one another. The church is a real body, a unified organism growing into Christ together. I do not do that on my own. I don't do that well at all on my own. None of us does. In fact, we cannot. None of us can grow in compassion if we're all by ourselves. We, we can't grow in humility if there's no one else to humble ourselves before. We can't grow in kindness if there's no one to show kindness to. We can't grow in patience and bearing with one another if we're only around people who don't test our patience. If we're only around people who are easy to bear with. We grow in these areas by being together, hearing from Christ together. All of these areas are where we as a church are becoming more like Christ. And all of them require that, that we not only put on Christ, but also that, be, that we be with the body of Christ. So we're not just putting on Christ, we're, we're putting on one another. We're living with one another so that we could be sharpened in these ways by one another. And being with the body of Christ, that's how we're pulled and stretched and bent and shaped to be more like our Savior. Do you see the beauty of what God has given us in His church? Do you ever realize that the person you're sitting next to, God has given you so that you could be made more like Christ? So when you say, I'm not going to gather with the church today, I'm going to stay and watch football, or I'm going to stay and have brunch, or whatever it is, you know what you're doing? You are denying another brother or sister the opportunity to be shaped into Christ-likeness. We give of ourselves over and over again to others in love so that we could be shaped to be more like Christ. That's what God's given us. Let's pray.